Welcome to the podcast where Beast Mode meets Manifesting Goddess. If you're ready to become the energetic match for all of your desires and start achieving from a place of joy and expansion, you are in the right place. I'm your host, Kayla Van Egdom, a health and energy coach, unicorn lover, and Amazon best-selling author. Crushing your goals can feel like self-care, and together we are going to slay and thrive. Welcome back to another episode in our special series, The Catalyst Diaries. Today we are talking with Charlene Madden, and she's sharing her empowering story of finding freedom, healing, moving past generational trauma, all of the things. I actually got goosebumps hearing her story just about everything she's been through and how she then found herself in the right place at the right time, hearing what she needed to hear just days before she was planning to take her own life. So now she's on a mission to help others who are struggling with mental health, trauma, all of those different things. This episode does refer to attempted suicide as well as domestic abuse, just in case you need to be sensitive about those topics for yourself. For From here, we will dive right into our talk with Charlene Madden. Good morning, Charlene, and welcome to the Slay and Thrive podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you on here. You are probably one of my most expert interview guests in terms of how many podcasts you've been on. So we were actually just talking about that before we started. So how many podcasts have you been on now? Um, Around 60. So, and that's just this year. So it's been busy. Yeah. And now this will be 61. 61. (laughs) Now I feel pressure. Jeez. No, (laughs) no pressure at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I am actually really excited to have you on here for two reasons. One, we were in an amazing mastermind together uh, called Catalyst. And then I know you also have a really powerful story about rising from some dark and challenging times. Mm -hmm. So I'd love if you could just share with my listeners a bit of your story. Um, Sure. My story kind of starts when I was younger. Uh, I was three and a half when my parents got divorced. My dad was a really severe alcoholic and he tended to be violent when he drank. And uh, most of his violence was directed at my half brothers because, of course, they weren't biologically his. So they were convenient targets. Um, And again, when I was three and a half, my mom had to make a tough decision. Does she stay in the marriage? Does she take kids and go? And my dad would not allow her to take my sister and I um, because we were his. And um, so she had to make a tough choice and she decided to take my brothers and go, uh, which probably saved their lives. Tough decision. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, my dad being such an alcoholic, he wasn't able to care for two little girls. So we were placed to live with my grandparents. And uh, my grandmother was an absolutely amazing woman, uh, super strong. I always thought she was really far ahead for the time, the era that she came from, because she felt women should get a good education, get, you know, a good career, be independent, support themselves. 
And um, I always say I learned that lesson probably a little bit too well, being so independent. But um, as wonderful as she was, unfortunately, my grandfather was a pedophile. So at the age of three and a half, both my sister and I started experiencing sexualized trauma at his hands. And this went on for over nine years. And um, I never said anything. I think I was inside. I was afraid that I was going to lose the only family that I knew since I'd already lost my parents. And, um, and of course, you're always afraid of that shame. And um, I wouldn't have said anything probably, but my sister went to school at the age of 16 and had a breakdown because she was terrified of being impregnated by my grandfather. And she wanted to leave, but she was afraid of um, it, all the abuse going on to me. And she was trying to protect me as much as she could. So it all came out. My grandfather was arrested, went to jail and we're talking the early eighties. So counseling and therapy was not really a big thing back then. So there was really no follow-up care, no treatment, no dealing with any of the stuff that, you know, we were dealing with emotionally as kids. And, you know, I remember sitting, you know, having a social worker sitting across the table and kind of get up and come pat me on the the back and say, Charlene, I want you to know everything's going to be okay. And I'm 12 and a half. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what okay is at this point in my life. Like, what is that supposed to look like? Because I've never felt okay. And, you know, so this is how I, I go into my teenage years and go into high school. And, you know, I'm in a small town, so kind of everybody knows what's happened. So there's no escaping that stigma that you feel. Mm-hmm. And I start quickly dealing with mental health struggles in high school. Uh, I started cutting as a way of dealing with the emotional pain. And I became extremely suicidal. And... um Luckily, I found writing as an outlet. Um, And I always said I was pouring ink out onto paper rather than blood at times. But when you're writing such dark, depressing, suicidal stuff, of course, it catches attention. And uh, at, you know, 15 and a half, I'm pulled into the guidance counselor's office to meet with school psychologist who um, informs me after a four hour assessment questionnaire that I am being diagnosed as bipolar manic depressive. And I'm, again, 15 and a half in a time where there is no cell phone, so I can't jump on and Google what that means. I have, all I'm doing is feeling like extra crazy now because now there's a label on me. And um, again, no follow-up care. It was a, if you need to talk, we're here, book an appointment, we'll come in and, and, you know, be here for you anytime. And really, that's the last thing I wanted was to talk about it. So I just put my head down as my grandmother taught me, plowed my way through high school, uh, moved away as soon as I graduated because I thought running away was going to solve all my problems. And I moved away with my high school sweetheart and we ended up getting married and having three kids. And I think each child I had, I felt was going to fill that hole, that void that I was feeling inside. It was going to be that one person that was going to love me the way I needed or felt I wanted to be loved And um, that's not the answer, of course. And as each child I had, I kind of sunk deeper and deeper into a depression because I felt like I wasn't changing the generational trauma that had happened. I was struggling to connect with my daughters because of the abuse I had suffered. And I had some guilt and shame around that. So at 28, I sat down with my husband and said, "Um, I need to leave the house. I had gotten extremely suicidal again and was afraid my kids were going to come home from school and find me dead. 
my marriage was pretty much over at that time. So my husband was like, okay, fine, peace out. Right. So I packed a bag and left and thought, okay, I'm going to try to get my life together. But all it did was put me in a spiral of deeper depression because now I felt I had repeated the pattern of leaving my children. Um, I was drinking heavily at that time and um, it was my coping mechanism. And of course it wasn't a very healthy one. So I, you know, move out, think I'm going to get myself together, but all I did was go into that deeper spiral. And about a month after I left my husband, I met someone and jumped into another relationship And uh, when they say like attracts like, they are so correct because this person was as dysfunctional as I was. They had just left a relationship, had suffered childhood trauma, and they were toxic. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when they drank, they also were violent. So very quickly in that relationship, I started experiencing domestic violence. And after two years of this, I kind of hit a wall where I was like, I can't live like this. Um, After an extremely bad night. He had left the apartment and I got up, went to my medicine cabinet and emptied all of the medication out and took all the pain pills, sleeping pills, and then sat down on my couch and with a pad of paper and a pen started writing my goodbye letters to my kids. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done, but thank goodness the best thing I ever did, because as I was writing that letter, I realized that I was abandoning my kids in the most final and complete way. And I knew I couldn't do that. So I called a cab. I jumped in it, went to the hospital, and I was sitting at the admissions desk explaining how I think I'm overdosing when I collapsed. And when I woke up, I am laying in a hospital bed with tubes down my throat. And my partner is sitting in the chair next to me, crying, saying how sorry he was, and it would never happen again. I get released from the hospital. My mom calls and says, hey, I think you need to pack up and move. Grab the kids, move across the country. We'll help you get on your feet. And of course, this fit into my generational pattern of let's just run to escape our problems. So it fit for me. So that's what I did. I moved across the country, moved out to British Columbia and um, thought everything was going to be great. But there's that saying that no matter where you go, there you are. So I was just bringing, you know, my problems with me and kind of to make matters worse. um, My partner decided after I'd moved out there. Six months later, he decided he loved me. He missed me. He was moving across the country as well. And at the time, I thought that was fantastic. But all it did was lead to another decade of domestic violence and complete dysfunction. And it was in 2015, July 1st, Canada Day, that I remember, you know, being at home and him coming home and saying, I've decided I'm moving out. I'm moving out today. And he moved directly in with another woman. So again, this fell into my feeling like I was never good enough, never going to be loved enough. It just fit the narrative of story that I kept telling myself. But I thought, okay, now's my opportunity to get my life together. And I had a great support group of girlfriends who were like, yeah, let's go. Everything's going to be great. And I thought it was going to be. And for about two and a half months, I faked my way around everybody pretending that I was okay. And I was actually at work one evening and um, a police officer came in and asked to talk to me outside. Now he knew where to find me because he had been involved in a domestic case that we had had. And um, he took me outside and said, Charlene, I just wanted to let you know, I just came on shift and I saw a notice on the board. um, Your ex-partner has shot and killed himself. 
So my world kind of just started collapsing in on itself. I think um, dysfunctionally, I'd kept hope that I would be enough that he would want to get his life together and he would come back and things would be that fairy tale life that I thought was going to happen. And now all possibility of that was gone. And um, I didn't know how I was going to, to get through it. And again, like I did, I was a master of wearing a mask of, you know, pretending like I was okay and just burying everything deep down. I just kept plugging through life. And this worked for about another six, eight months until, you know, I reached a point where I was sitting on my bathroom floor with a gun cabinet key in one hand, a handful of pills in the other hand, trying to decide which option to choose at that moment. And just thinking again, that my son was downstairs sleeping in his bedroom and he was going to be the one that found me. So I grabbed a knife and I started cutting myself. And I remember sitting on the bathroom floor with blood pooling around me thinking this is no way to live. Like this is, I'm on the edge of either it being over or I've got to get help. Like I've got to do something. And it was the first point where I really realized I needed to try to get help. And I reached out to mental health services, got in right away to see a a psychiatrist. And I thought this was going to be what I needed. And about my third appointment in um, my personality is I I know I'm screwed up. Like, I don't need to talk about the past. I know what got me here. I need to know how to get from here to healthy. So just give me the steps. Give me the one, two, three, four. That's my personality. Just give me the work and I'll do it. And she wasn't doing that. And I remember asking her and saying, look, I I get it. I know why I'm this way. Just tell me how to fix it. Like, how did you get better? How did you deal with your mental health struggles? And I remember her eyes kind of glazing over when she looked at me and she said, well, Charlene, I've never dealt with mental health struggles personally. And it was this moment of, well, wait a minute. How can you even possibly understand? Like you've sat here for three appointments and told me you understand how I feel. You can't possibly understand how Mm -hmm. I'm feeling. Because unless you've sat in that dark place, you don't know what it's like. And I think I emotionally checked out. I thought, you know, I can't even get help when I want it. And I left that appointment and I went, that's it. I'm done. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of fighting to try to be well. I don't have it in me anymore. And I set a date a month from that to end my life. And I had just purchased a house. And um, I remember my psychiatrist was so excited because people that are going to commit suicide don't buy houses, right? They don't do that. But what she didn't realize was it was the legacy I was going to leave to my children because it felt like the only thing of value I had. I could try to set them up financially because emotionally I had failed them. And so 30 days after I moved in, I was going to have everything set up, ready to go and um, then end my life. So two weeks before that date, a girl I worked with approached me and said, Hey, there's this women's workshop um, in two weeks. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, Oh, hell no. That's the last thing I want to do right now. I don't want to go sit in a room with people and pretend I'm okay. And, um, and she's like, please, I really want to go, but I don't want to go alone. And I was like, Oh, that's my kryptonite. You know, like I always cared about everybody else and wanted everybody else to be okay. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, this girl really needs to go. She needs help. And at this time, I'm probably projecting myself onto her, not knowing it. And so I go to the workshop and I pull up that 
Saturday morning with, you know, plans to end my life the Monday morning after. And I've got my hunting rifle in the back seat of my SUV. And I walk into that room of women and immediately feel sick to my stomach because it's like a spotlight is shining on me about how I don't belong there. It just felt like this was highlighting what an imposter I was in my life. And, you know, I'm listening, I'm walking to my table and I'm hearing these ladies and they've got like, they're well-dressed, they're all put together. You know, and here I am, you know, feeling like a mess covered in tattoos. I'm like feeling so out of place. And I'm listening to them talk about setting goals and doing vision boards. And I'm like, man, I'm just trying to get to through two days so I can end my life. And you guys are planning for the future. So I sit down and the first part of the day is nothing. It's like financial planning and diet and exercise. And of course, to me, none of this applies to my life. And then the afternoon session starts and a woman takes the stage and she is bald. She has alopecia. And she starts talking about the struggle she experienced in her childhood, her adolescence, and as a young woman with feelings of lack of self-worth and no self-love. And she's telling how when she embraced loving herself rather than needing everybody else to validate her, how much her life had changed. And as I'm sitting there, I hear this little voice that kind of says, well, what about you? And I'm thinking, yeah, what about me? Like, how different could my life have been had I not needed everyone else to love me had I not needed validation, you know, to make up for my mom and my dad and my grandpa and the the abusive relationship. What if I loved myself and that was enough? And of course I brushed it off and the next speaker takes a stage and it's a woman who starts talking about dealing with mental health struggles and uh, mental illness and how for two decades she fought against the darkness And it was when she actually stopped and she accepted that her mental illness was part of herself. And instead of trying to make it go away and, and, you know, keep it at bay, she pulled the darkness in so that her light could shine into it and that her whole life changed after that. And again, I'm sitting there in that seat and I hear that, well, what about you? And I think, yeah, like, what if I could have got a grips on this mental health issue? How different could my life have been if I would not have fought against it and I could have learned to live with it in a healthy functioning way. But again, I, you know, my decision is made. So I just, I'm brushing all these little voices off. And then the next person gets up and it's a gentleman who starts talking about uh, his failed marriage, his alcoholism, losing custody of his kids and living with mental health and being suicidal and how he had spent a year trying to find a perfect mix of pain medication and alcohol so that he could overdose, but make it look like an accident because he sold life insurance and he knew what he needed to do. And one rare occasion, his wife asked him if he could watch the kids overnight. He said, yes. And it was on that night. He found that perfect mix of drugs and alcohol and how, as he was lying in that bed on his couch, overdosing while his kids were sleeping in the next room, he real, he heard this voice that said, no, not today. Not like this. There's more. He was able to get to his phone, called 911, and his whole life changed. He got the help that he needed. He got clean and sober. And now he was going around and sharing his story in hopes of of helping someone else. Now, at this point, I'm sitting in that seat going, what is going on right now? Like, almost looking around for a hidden camera, knowing there's no one there because no one knows what I'm going through, but thinking, what are the chances that I'm at an event that I didn't want to come to, that... 
I've just heard three speakers talking about the three areas of my life that I have struggled the most in at a moment when I need to hear those messages the most. And I was like, this cannot be by accident that I'm sitting here. Like I'm here in this moment for a reason. And it was like a light switch went off and it was like a moment of, you know, I have gone through all of these struggles and more. And maybe there's a purpose to this pain that I've experienced. And maybe that purpose is choosing to live and not just live, but choosing to thrive. And then being able to take my story and share it and say, I see you. I understand what you're feeling with. I know what it feels like to sit in the dark, not be that person who's read it in a book and thinks mm-hmm. that, you know, they know how it is, but to say, I've actually lived it. I, I understand the pain and the hurt that you're experiencing. And it was in that moment that everything changed. Like I, when he was done, I went up and I, I approached the organizer of the event and I said, I need to sit with you and, and tell you what this event has done for me, because I felt she needed to know that that event had saved my life. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with her and I said, you know, talk, sharing my story. And, and I said, you know, I would love to come back next year and speak at your event and just let your attendees know the power of these kinds of events and the power that story can have. And she was like, absolutely. So I went back the next year and I spoke at that event. And I mean, in between that first event, and the next event, like everything had changed. I felt like when I walked out of that room, the universe gave a collective size if it was saying, oh, finally, we've been waiting for you, right? So it's like, I, I made decisions and I, I stopped letting fear control my life. I, I published that book of poetry that I had written when I was the teenager and the young woman struggling. I published that to put it out there to say to the world, this is who I am. This is the pain and the heartache and the struggle I've gone through. I started doing things that scared me. I, I asked someone out on a date, you know, just so if they, you know, thinking when they say no, I'm going to learn that it's okay. Rejection is not going to kill me. I'm going to survive. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately the person said yes. So it kind of blew that, you know, (laughs) lesson that I was trying to teach myself, but you know, they said, yes, we had our first date and then in December, and then we got married in August, you Mm -hmm. know, it was like everything started to fall in place when I made that decision to live. And I went back the next year, I spoke at that event and before I got off the stage, I said, my reason for being here is to share my story and to let people know that they're not alone. And if me sharing my story can touch one person and save one life, then everything I have experienced in my life has been worth it. And I got off the stage and I was beelining it out the room because, you know, I was so nervous. And a woman stopped me that had been in the audience. And she said, you know how you said you wanted to save a life? And I was like, yep. And she said, I just want you to know today you did. And she turned and walked away. Wow. And it was one of those moments again, where everything got really quiet. And of course, you know, I'm in shock that she had said that. And, and then I heard that little voice in the back of my head that I've learned to listen to and trust. And it said, let's go find one more. So for me, every day is an opportunity to find that one more, that one more person that needs to know they're not alone, that it's okay to be in that dark place and that there's hope. So that's why I do these podcasts as an opportunity just to reach out and, and let people know that, you know, I see them and they're not alone. Wow. So I have goosebumps just hearing that story and so many things I want to touch on. The first is just the way everything fell into place at that first event. 
And I think it was Albert Einstein who said that we can either live like nothing is a miracle or like everything is. And I think the latter is going to be very powerful. It really shines through in your story and where you've come from and what you're able to do with it. The other thing, um, I have two things I wanted to come back to. The first is that idea of generational trauma and how you're able to see the patterns. And I think it was in seeing those patterns, you were able to start to change them. And also you mentioned the fact that eighties and before that getting help for mental health and getting help for domestic abuse and sexual abuse and all those things wasn't the norm. So it makes so much sense that generational trauma would be something that just keeps on happening until we start to get that help and notice the patterns and really change things. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I found out um, after our abuse came out and my grandfather was arrested, um, it came to light that my mom had experienced sexual abuse and rape by my grandfather. So it was, um, you know, you realize how many patterns, like how many years and, and lives that it it had affected. And I mean, and I can't say as, as desperately as I wanted to break that generational trauma, I didn't really break it. Um, I'm working on the next generation breaking it because I didn't have the tools and the skills and the knowledge to, um, to be a good parent, to be a good mom, to do the things that I needed to do because I was so trapped in my own darkness. But now being able to uh, have those conversations with my daughters and my son and be open and honest. And that, I think that's so huge is, is part of breaking that generational cycle is talking about it as a family. I mean, as a parents, we want to protect our children and keep them from the dark things that happen. But reality is we need to pull them into that and, and make them aware, number one, of, of what had happened. So if you're struggling, your kids need to know that because if they see you being strong all the time and they start to struggle, they don't know what to do. So we need to normalize the fact that, you know what, it's okay to struggle sometimes. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. And that was the other thing that I would love to dive in a little bit deeper on was you mentioned one of the speakers that was at the event talked about how she thought she had to kind of get rid of her mental health and make it go away. But then she realized she could accept it as part of herself and integrate her darkness with her light, which one of my favorite concepts. And like you said, a big part of that is having the conversations and being real and being vulnerable. And I think also like owning our own ways we are human because if we're just trying to like ignore all that stuff and pretend it's not there we're almost trying to be like superhuman which is not a thing and it's in some of those ways that we do struggle and we are challenged that we can a connect to other people and we can also use those parts of ourselves to actually gain deeper awareness and grow as well so what are your thoughts on that yeah I agree I mean like I said, to me, um, dealing with mental illness is, and I say to people all the time, if I was diabetic and needed to, you know, be on insulin or or whatever it is, no one would judge me for that. Right. But when I say, you know, I have depression and mental illness struggles, there's that judgment towards it. Right. When it's like, biologically, I can't help it. And I, and I think coming to the realization that it's something that I'm going to live with for the rest of my life, 
then it gives you, you know, when you may have that understanding, you go, okay, I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. And it's kind of like being stuck with a mother-in-law that you don't like, right? <laughs> it's like, you're, you can't get rid of it. So you might as well learn to live with it as best as you can in the most healthy way. So being able to have those conversations for me is part of the healing process. And, and again, letting people know, you know, like I tell people all the time, it's okay to not be okay. Like we're not all living Instagram lives. You know, those are just tiny snippets that the world puts out there. And, you know, and I realized, you know, after going to that first event and having talking to the women that were at that event, you know, my perception was those women that I walked into the room had it all together, right? Because that's the perception that they were putting out there. But the reality is, um, they didn't have it all together. A lot of people were struggling just like I was. So I think, um, yeah, talking about it is, is so huge in breaking those cycles and, and creating the awareness around it. Yes, absolutely. So talking is one way that really helps a person live with their mental health in the healthiest way possible. What are some of your other best practices for living the most fulfilling, happiest life possible with mental health, mental health challenges? Um, I work on a three S um, process. So this is like when I do any one-on-one and coaching and stuff like that, three S's and that's self-love self-acceptance and self-responsibility. So again, the first thing for me was self-love because when I loved myself, I started asking myself, what would someone who loves himself do? And I started making those choices, the self-acceptance, understanding and giving yourself grace that you don't have to be perfect in the moment. And, you know, just again, embracing whatever it is, your flaws and all, But self-responsibility is so important because you need to understand. I could blame every decision I've made in my life on the trauma that happened to me. But Mm -hmm. reality is I'm the one that's making those decisions as an adult. So I have to start taking responsibility for myself, the choices I'm making, learn to set some boundaries and boundaries with other people, but also boundaries with myself on what I'm willing to do and, you know, do for myself and to myself. So I think following those three S's, there's so many things you can do for me. Journaling, of course, is, is so huge because it allows you to, you know, if you just brain dump and write things out, um, you can start to see the patterns of the self-talk that you have. And that way you can, you know, you know what areas you need to start working on and, and put your love and attention into. So, but um, ultimately, if, if, you know, just finding and connecting with someone who can understand if you feel all alone. And I always say on a podcast, so I'm going to throw this out here now. If you're ever feeling in a dark place, like you have no one to talk to, please reach out to me on Facebook because I will come and virtually sit with you in the dark, wherever you are at. And um, because I don't want anyone to ever feel alone with what they're experiencing or going through. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that offer. And I will make sure to include uh, some links in the episode description so people can find you. And I love your three S's. I actually have three S's that uh, I have personally as well. And it's, it's just a nice framework. And I agree that self-responsibility is such a powerful one because it isn't our fault, whatever has happened to us, but it is our responsibility to be able to navigate our lives after that has taken place. 
And it's so empowering. Like, I mean, as, as people who have experienced trauma, taking self-responsibility is a way for you to take your power. Yes, absolutely. I think it's also one of the most self-loving things you can do. So they all really like connect together. together, So, So I have enjoyed our conversation so much, Charlene. And I would just love to know if people want to learn more about you or work with you further, how can they do so? Uh, you can reach out to me on Facebook, Charlene Madden, speaker and author. Uh, I have a website, www.charlenemadden-speaker.com. You can find me on Instagram, Charlene Ann Madden. And uh, to work with me coaching, uh, you can go to www.ascensionwellnessstudio.com. And uh, we can book some some sessions or if you just want to chit chat or send a message. But uh, I love to hear from from people. If uh, you've heard anything that's impacted you, give me a shout out. So and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. (laughs) Oh, thank you for that little plug. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Charlene. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you're loving this podcast, I would be so grateful if you'd subscribe leave a rating and review of this podcast wherever you listen, and maybe even share this episode with a friend or two. And if you want bonus live trainings, challenges, a monthly book club, and a community of other amazing people looking to slay and thrive daily, I would love for you to join our free Facebook community, the Unicorn Thunder Playground. Hope to see you inside.